You're listening to the Small Town Monsters Broadcasting Network. You can find out more about this and other network shows, as well as Small Town Monsters films, books, our upcoming Kickstarter campaign, and much more at smalltownmonsters.com. Welcome, everyone, to another Sunday night Small Town Monsters live after show. My name is Aaron. I'm your host tonight. And one year and seven days ago today, Jerry Crew discovered human-like footprints at a construction site in the woods, which may or may not have kicked off this whole Sasquatch thing. Joining me tonight is a very special guest who I'm very excited to welcome back to the studio to talk about all this Sasquatch stuff. But we do have a couple of announcements to get to before we do that. Definitely mark your calendars for da, 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 da. the next Small Town Monsters Kickstarter coming February of next year. Technical difficulties there, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, this is the place to get on the ground floor of the next round of Small Town Monsters projects, some of which may have been announced, some of which may not have. There's always surprises waiting in the wings. I never know what's going to happen next. Uh, but definitely mark your calendars for that. You're not going to want to miss it. And Monster Fest 2 doth fast approacheth. Tickets are going fast. You're not going to want to miss it. We have a ton of awesome guests we've already announced, like Mr. Ryan Sprague. We are also going to be hosting Mr. Lyle Blackburn, as well as Sheena Steinglass, and so many more people that we have announced, maybe a few that we haven't. So don't miss out on that, guys. That's going to be in Canton, Ohio, June of next year. And I think we'll just go ahead and get to things. Uh, we started a couple of minutes late. So, Alex, how the heck are you, man? Oh, I think you're muted, sir. Oh, see, this is what happens when you're not in your usual studio. You kind of get thrown off. I've got my computer literally on a pool table right now. So uh, if I just start playing pool mid-sentence, uh, forgive me. No, but I'm good. I'm just hanging out here, obviously not at home, uh, getting away for the long weekend here. Hope everyone is having an awesome Labor Day weekend so far for our U.S. viewers. Yeah, hopefully everybody's getting some time off, getting some time to relax. Um, a little bit of extra time to check out the new film, you know, if, if you were busy this weekend, that's a possibility. So <laughs> so let's get into it. Um, we have a new episode of Dark Coast, Hunt for the Alaskan Bigfoot. Um, probably one of the coolest subtitles in Small Town Monsters history, <laughs> Into the Fog. I'm really digging it. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think it works with overall aesthetic. Uh, just kind of popped into my head and I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I think the whole Dark Coast title that we kind of it was actually seth jason and i who kind of thought of that we were kind of kind of kicking back and forth names i think it works really well especially with the aesthetic of the this episode and going forward dark coast kind of fits it a lot more than like a sunshine kind of nice pretty environment like <laughs> like it has been in the previous episode yeah yeah it really sets the tone and as soon as i saw the title card for this episode i was like oh this is going to be cool this is going to be neat. <laughs> it almost has like Misty Mountains, Lord of the Rings type vibes. Definitely. So just, just thought I'd throw that out there. So the, the film opens, and I'm going to try to be light on spoilers tonight because we did kind of get into some spoilers last week, and I didn't properly set the stage for that. <laughs> so spoilers ahead, folks, if you haven't seen the film yet. Um, but the film opens with a really epic shot, not even just a shot because you guys got it from multiple angles, um, but a humpback whale you know, in the harbor where you guys were, were filming. Um, how common is that in, in this part of Alaska? Is that something that these folks just see all the time? Or, you know, I'm just so curious about that. Yeah, it's pretty common. I mean, uh, that was the only humpback whale we saw on this trip. But last year when we did the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch, parts one and two, in part, part one, there was uh, another kind of very similarly epic incident with hump, two humpback whales actually that were kind of seen right in, that, in the same very bay. So they, it's pretty common. They do come in here and feed on um, herring and other fish, smaller aquatic life. So it's pretty common in Alaska, obviously not very common in a lot of other places, but it was incredible. And this is the second time it's happened where uh, I was sleeping. It was early in the morning. We stay up till almost three, four in the, in the morning, usually when we're out, especially at a place like that where some of the other guys wake up earlier and they notice this in the bay and they wake us up and say, there's a whale. So everyone's getting all excited. The same thing happened last year when we were out there with Eli and everybody when we were doing the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch. And <laughs> we, we headed out on the boat at that point. We also saw orcas in that first 
uh, Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch film, and there will be some orca stuff as well at some point during this series too, just because there's, I mean, it just kind of goes with the overall theme in Alaska of so many wild animals, and not just on land, but literally right outside uh, in the water. I mean, a couple hundred yards, and you've got a humpback whale just feeding casually and opening its mouth and jumping in the air. I mean, it's just incredible, but it, it fits with Alaska overall. I got chills during that shot. You know, the, the, I want to ruin it, but there's a, a particular shot <laughs> where the music kicks in and you see it, it moving. And I was just like, Oh, this is good. This is so good. <laughs> oh, thanks man. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's not even like it takes that much skill. It's just like, there's a whale. All you got to do is sit there and film it. It's, am- it's just amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's like the whale does all the work, right? We're just sure kind of, uh, filming it, but uh, it's, it's awesome. It's definitely really cool to see stuff. Yeah. Like that. Well, somebody had to go there and point a camera at it. So that too, you yeah. know, you can take, you can take some credit. <laughs> For sure. Uh, casual off the cuff question. How was the fishing? You know, uh, I was actually semi nauseous during those uh, sequences there. It was, the water was very choppy. Now I'm not usually seasick. I, I can handle bumpy rides, but, uh, I was out with two of the other guys from the cabin and, you know, even myself and one of the other guys, we were both kind of, there, there were some big swells coming in. We were both getting kind of queasy. I just was like, you know what? It actually, when I was sitting down in the boat, it was not as great. And then when I, I didn't feel good. And then I'd get up and grab the net and help the one guy uh, with his fishing. I didn't really do any fishing myself, but um, he was doing fishing. And you know, we there's a lot of different types of salmon out there. We were looking for halibut, but we didn't get any on that day, which was kind of funny. But it was fun. I just kind of wanted to include that sequence as showing something a little different. Uh, that's something that we got a chance to do while out there, which is what a lot of people, when they go to that part of Alaska, obviously they, they, they go fishing. So I was just, I didn't want to make it a whole big, long sequence. I mean, it's just a couple minutes in the film and it just kind of showcases like, this is what we're up to. This is what we did just to kind of uh, get away from the weather a little bit and just kind of enjoy being out there and seeing all the natural wonders out there. I mean, the plentiful amount of fish and resources just showing you how how you could survive out there with some of the uh, gifts that i guess nature gives you just the plentiful food sources out there that's cool yeah and you guys you identified some other potential food sources we won't get too into that but i like that you tapped on that because that is something you explore in the film is you know the possibility of food sources for these creatures as being in this area so little teaser hopefully not too much of a spoiler um a big hello to everybody in the chat we've got some great questions uh that we will definitely get to should we take some audience questions Alex? yeah i'm game for whatever i mean i see there's a lot of people from all over the world and we've got north carolina scotland i think i saw new zealand in there yeah Um, that's awesome it's just so cool to see all over the map tonight thank you guys so much for tuning in as always you know we we very much appreciate you tuning in even if it's just for a few minutes even if you just pop in to say hi it's always great to see you all so also also we've got a bunch of new members i don't know yes we need to shout out and thank our new members you read my mind my friend Um, (laughs) we we've had some great folks join the squad recently stacy paul we also want to thank Oh man, my computer's not keeping up with me today. <laughs> Stacy Paul, Scott Bryant, Mason Treasure, uh, Peter Borowich, Borowatch. I, I'm sh- sure I pronounced that <laughs> wrong, and I apologize. I really do apologize. Uh, Thomas Davis and Nigel Lewis have all signed up for the STM squad. Thank you guys so much. Um, if you're not aware of what the, how the squad works, what it is, $6.99 per month gets you access to a ton of Small Town Monsters content early in ad-free 4K, um, including the Dark Coast series. So our squad members got to check this film out uh, a few days ago. So yeah. great. Usually it's like Wednesday. Months. Usually the videos go up Wednesday and then they come out publicly on Sunday. And yeah, this kind of stuff is made for 4K. So for those of you that just joined, especially definitely go watch this episode in 4k because i get to edit it in 4k and i'm I'm almost disappointed when i export the 1080 version and then i see it i'm like oh this is not what i'm used to seeing because i'm spending so much time looking at the 4k version because obviously we film it in 4k and uh, then we export in 4k so that's kind of the the way it's intended to look i suppose but um Mm -hmm. not saying the 1080 version is bad it's just 4k is obviously come on yeah 4k (laughs) if you can that's the way to go for sure sure (laughs) 
So we do have a couple audience questions I'm, I'm real eager to get to. And I'm going to try to bring this up here. Huh. Yeah, I can see it on screen. Okay, great. So Gary Baldridge asks, uh, big fan from Huntington, West Virginia. My question is this, due to the wildfires up north, you think it will cause an uptick in sightings in the lower 48 if they are migratory animals? It's an interesting question. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't even know where to begin. Um, I personally don't believe if these things are in some of these areas that they are migratory in the sense that they would travel from, you know, the northern hemisphere to like Florida. I think that's that's a stretch. Um, I think they probably just my best guess is that they probably live in these areas. I mean, it depends where you are. And I was actually talking to somebody, a buddy of mine about this the other day. We were discussing migrational routes possible in the northeastern U.S. And when I say migrational routes, I just mean for habitat. You've got all these green belts and there's a lot of sightings that go along these sort of green belts in the mountains that are on the edges of civilization. And that's where the sightings cluster. So you could imagine you know, maybe a couple hundred miles moving if you're in the Rocky Mountains, maybe you follow the elk as they move up and down elevation, depending on the season. If you're in the swamps of Florida, you probably don't have to really move much at all year round, unless you're also following food sources. But when it comes to the wildfires, uh, we've talked about this a lot too recently because there's a lot of wildfires out by Bluff Creek in Northern California at the moment, very close to the Patterson-Kimlin film site. Actually, uh, frighteningly close. So we're keeping an eye on that, hoping that that doesn't destroy the film site. I mean, that's that's a Sasquatch cultural treasure basically destroyed. Uh, that's what happened to the Sierra site, from what I understand. That place no longer exists. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a couple of places in Florida, too, that have been lost. Uh, I think where Stacy Brown got his alleged thermal footage, that was destroyed by a hurricane. So it's, it's really unfortunate when that kind of thing happens. But uh, there's been a lot of wildfires in Canada. I saw a bunch of them actually driving back from Alaska. We drove like two miles from two separate forest fires and it was i mean bright 8 p.m at night and near the yukon territory and it was so hazy it was like a scene out of the apocalypse this purplish orangish sky with just haze and it was snowing ash um so i don't know i mean we saw buffalo and we saw other wildlife in and around that fire but i have heard it theorized that sasquatches might be pushed out of certain areas wildfires destroy habitat of course Mm -hmm. um, definitely, I've heard of that before. I don't see, you know, why it wouldn't affect Sasquatches if they are some sort of flesh and blood creature on the landscape, like it does other animals. They just move. Usually, they're pretty good about it. They move. Most animals, uh, not a lot of animals, die in forest fires, from what I understand, unless it's extremely bad. Um, I know even just from some of the research I've done in Florida, they do a lot of controlled burns down there, and from talking to people involved in that. The animals usually just move on their own, uh, so I, that's you know kind of uh, my thoughts on that. But uh, it's it's a lot of guessing, obviously. But maybe yeah. focus on areas that are right near the edges of forest fires. So that might be an interesting place to try to look for evidence or potential activity. Yeah, it would be. You know, it's probably a matter of us looking for it too, because in an environment like that, you know, we're not sending teams of people out to look for Bigfoot. We're concerned about search and rescue. So, you know, I think there's definitely no. Just saying. I think there's definitely a possibility there. That's a great question. Thank you, Gregory. Right. Uh, Mark, yeah, love it, love it. We always get the best questions in these definitely. live streams. They're very intelligent questions. I, I must commend people for their awesome questions. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Mark McHiggins, good day from Australia. Love it, love it. Have you guys found any hair samples? Great question. Hopefully it's not too early or late for you in Australia. I think they're forward, so maybe it's tomorrow for them there, probably. Uh, it's a good question. Yes, we have found hair samples. Have they turned out to be Sasquatch in the past? No, we had in, uh, if you go back to one of our earliest episodes, I think it's actually the most, well, this is on Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, when Eli and I were out at a property in Colorado with some, they had some strange activity and they'd collected these hair samples off of a fence post and I had collected it, the sample, and I had sent it off to somebody who is one of the top hair analysis people in North America, or at least has a very high skill set in that regard. She was able to examine it and determine it was actually raccoon hair. It was very long and spindly and it looked very much like hair. Um, and as for hair samples with this series, uh, I'm just gonna say stay tuned. And I don't wanna like, 
elude anything, but uh, yeah, stay tuned for the next episode because it's relevant to this question. I probably just gave it away, but there you go. No, that's a, that's a great teaser because now everybody's going, but if they found hair, what color is it? What yeah, exactly. It? And I haven't seen it. I don't know anything. So that's, that's fantastic. Love it. Thank you, Mark. That's a great question. Yeah, thanks, uh, Brenda asks, that cabin in the woods was freaky. Who could possibly build the terrain so tough? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, that's it's a bit of a spoiler, I guess. But, uh, you know, people go check out the episode. Yeah, that was really fun to find that. So the kind of the backstory with that place was that uh, in a, a few years ago, Scott, the property owner, somebody who had, who had come out to his property had also done some exploring in the area. And they had found what they described as an old kind of decrepit cabin. And we tried to find it last year, but we couldn't. We had found another cabin in the area, uh, but it was a little bit easier to get to, so it wasn't that unusual, but it looked also kind of abandoned. But the other, the, this one that we found was, was I mean, it was like very rustic, very strangely put together. Um, so it was really cool to be able to find that. We kind of thought it was there. We couldn't find it last year because there was just so much snow. And if you could see throughout the episode how difficult it is to move through that terrain, it is so difficult, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But uh, I don't know who built it. The thing is, people in Alaska are very hardy. There's cabins all over the place. People build stuff. But what really blew us away was how high up the hill it was. I mean, it took us a good over an hour to just to hike up to that location. And we accidentally saw the cabin. I mean, it's not like we, 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 we were about to give up and go a different direction and just continue our investigation when Luca noticed this window. I mean halfway across the, the the valley we're in and i'm like oh my god he's right there's a window there that that must be the cabin it was like a car window that was put sideways going this way it's just amazing because even walking down when we got to the cabin itself walking down back to the water to get to the boat it was so difficult doing that there wasn't a clear path or a trail it was a lot of bushwhacking it was brutal for somebody to have brought all that stuff up there just really kind of intrigued me. Uh, people do crazy stuff like that in Alaska. so um, But it just makes me wonder, was it a hunting cabin? Was it just an off the grid? A lot of strange people in Alaska trying to get away from the law. I mean, all kinds of stuff. It's kind of the end of the line, so to speak. There's a lot of weird people, so I don't know. Hopefully it's not just some you know person's cabin. I saw, I think, a comment earlier on the video of people saying, oh, hopefully the people who didn't watch, who, who made the cabin aren't watching. but. Even if they are, I'd be curious to know uh, because we looked it up and it, it wasn't private property. That's uh, it was on technically it was on national forest land or state mm -hmm. land because we were looking at there's those the app on X and it'll show you little parcels and most of the private property around there is small coastal patches of land and this was like way up on the hill so you would have been well within which either tells me somebody built it illegally or it's been there for a long time. There was a box underneath the cabin that we found of a, uh, I think it was either like an old 90s boom box, or maybe it was a cassette player. I don't remember which one of the two it was. There's a shot of it in the film, but it, we dated it. We, we saw a date on it, it said 1994, I believe. So uh, a, a year younger than me. So that's the only date we found of any of the stuff around there. So maybe, I mean, that's, all, that's 30 years basically that if let's say that was the last time somebody was there, maybe it's been sooner, maybe it hasn't, I don't know. But uh, that was definitely, it almost felt like, uh, I've watched a lot of these videos of people exploring abandoned places, and it almost felt like one of those. That's kind of the kind of vibes I tried to go for with discovering that and putting in the episode. See, that, uh, this is just an aside, but the exploring abandoned places scares me so much more than <laughs> searching for Bigfoot. I don't know. It's just, maybe it's the aesthetic, but. <laughs> you never know what you're going to find, right? Right. <laughs> there could be so many things. <laughs> Um, we do have another question from Brenda I, I want to make sure we cover. Um, do you think there's any Bigfoot in Pennsylvania? People say yes, that they live here. Um, probably. I don't know. I mean, I know it has Pennsylvania is like in the top 10 for sightings in the U.S. What I find really interesting about Pennsylvania is that there's a whole lot of nothing. There's You've got on one side Pittsburgh, the other side Philadelphia. And between that, there's really not a lot of major urban kind of populated areas. I've spent some time in... Um, Pennsylvania, I've had a crazy UFO sighting. That's to date still the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. But there's also a lot of Bigfoot reports. There's people like our buddy Sean Forker, who covers a lot of the Bigfoot stuff out there, um, and others as well. And there's been stories out of Pennsylvania for a long time. And I don't know if this statistic is still true, but uh, when, when I last checked a couple of years ago, it was Pennsylvania had 
very recently the highest amount of registered hunters in the country. Just a lot of people hunting and getting out in the outdoors. And as we know, a lot of Sasquatch sightings tend to come from or reported by people who are out hunting, sitting in the tree stand, seeing this thing, whatever. So Pennsylvania, yeah. Uh, obviously, you can check out any of the uh, chest, excuse me, the Chestnut Ridge stuff, Sasquatch Unearthed the Ridge. That series covers that. So um, there's great forests out there. There's the Allegheny National Forest. So there's, there's definitely habitat. I mean, it connects to West Virginia. It's kind of part of that whole Appalachian mountain chain. And it goes uh, connecting to a lot of those different areas. So I don't see why not in some certain areas of the state. Yeah, yeah. And again, it may just be a matter of us looking, you know, right in yeah. the area. And have we we haven't gone there yet and done the research. Yeah. But if the environment lends it, I don't know. I could go in circles with you on that because I agree. <laughs> That's a great question. Gets the mind spinning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did have, we talked a little bit about terrain with some of the questions we've covered, but I'm curious as to, you know, how does filming in this rough terrain and also with regards to the weather, you know, both the ground you have to cover and the weather that you're dealing with, what are things you may have to be conscious of in that environment that you don't have to worry about as much in a more temperate area? I'm just, I'm real curious about that because you dealt with a lot of weather in this one. Yeah. Uh, and going forward, the whole series is going to be a lot of weather related stuff. It just makes it difficult. So, I mean, Alaska, just everything is harder for some reason. It's just more difficult to get places. Just moving through those rainforests is tough. It's temperate rainforest, obviously, as we've talked about. But the thing is, uh, it's a you know, similar habitat that you might have coastal British Columbia, right? Southeast Alaska, even parts of Washington State down in Northern California. You, you might have some similar kind of stuff. but And this is found in all of them is uh, one particular nuisance is the uh, Devil's Club plant. So people from the Pacific Northwest will know about it. Many shots of it in the film because we just kept running into them. And there's these large sort of plants that have these spikes that are grow on the sides of the, the, the kind of plant itself. And it's a tall plant. And um, all of us got stabbed at least a couple times because you'll be walking through the woods and you're tripping on something. You try to grab something, you might grab a, a devil's club and then it's going into your hands and it can be pretty nasty. It just doesn't feel great. So people that are from the Pacific Northwest probably know dealing with Devil's Club quite a bit, but it's everywhere out there. I mean, uh, last year we were chopping it with machetes as we were going through, just kind of having to get through that. That's difficult. Obviously, the, the other creatures in the area having to be very cognizant of it. Uh, there are huge brown bear in that area, black bear, moose, just very dangerous creatures. Uh, so that's something you obviously got to be very aware of. And then just how remote you are is probably not really terrain wise, but just the danger is, I mean, you go up into a place like that bushwhacking as we were off trail. You fall into one of those crevasses as we did a couple of times. Maybe you break your leg. Thankfully, I'm with two other people, so I'm able to help them get out uh, or we're able to help each other. But let's say you're out there alone or just one other person. Any kind of minor injury like that can become very life threatening if you are over an hour boat ride from the nearest small town that then you're then another couple hours uh, by helicopter from let's say Anchorage or something like that. So it just kind of amplifies the threat level. And I, I, I do got to say this because um, Damon, who's in, in the episode quite heavily, he, you probably won't believe this, but he had a hip surgery like three weeks before we filmed that. <laughs> so the guy is a total beast. Damon is awesome. He does wow. a lot of drone stuff, but he's, he was like, yeah, I'm going to hang out by the cabin. If you guys need anything, I'll fly the drone. And he ended up going with us on uh, <laughs> on these hikes. Guy's a total uh, badass, absolutely, when it comes to getting out the woods. So um, if he could make it through that terrain, I mean, that tells you something. But, yeah, it's just a crazy uh, crazy place. Just a lot of things you got to worry about that might, you might not necessarily in uh, less wet areas to that kind of just you're soaking wet. I mean, we were out there for three, four hours and we got soaked, even though you have rain gear on and everything, it just does not feel great. Yeah. Forgetting something is more than an inconvenience, I would think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you drop like a GoPro or something up there, one, it'll be a pain to get up there, but you're, you're not going to find it. I mean, it's so thick in there. Something falls into that moss, especially small, it's gone forever. Somebody might find it in yeah, a thousand years or something that place is a change, a change landscape, but uh, you're not finding it. Yeah. Kind of on that topic, uh, uh, Gerg X1 Paulson, 
how far out in terms of miles do you research away from home base? That's a great question. I don't know if that's specifically about this location or just in general. Um, I, I'll, I'll keep it to obviously dark host. So that when we're out there, we're obviously staying in that cabin, uh, but we go out a few miles from there in the area. So in this case, we were probably a few miles away just because we crossed this bay that we're in and it looks deceptively close on video, but it takes you a good five, 10 minutes boat ride to get over to the other side. And then we're hiking up, you know, maybe, we only, maybe only like a mile and a half, or not a mile and a half, a half mile, three quarters of a mile kind of thing, just because it's such so slow moving up there. But when we were in other parts, we would take the larger boat and go to different bays that were multiple miles away across and just kind of check different sites out. Last year in Alaskan coastal Sasquatch, we went out to try to get to this glacier and that was like 10 plus miles away from kind of home base. But obviously it's nice when you have a lot of people with you, so you don't really have to worry about you know, if somebody, something wrong goes, if something happens, it goes wrong. You've, we're also connected with marine radios to the Coast Guard and to other boats. That's kind of something you have to be uh, connected to. I mean, even last year when we were out there, we, we had heard on the radio, and this was crazy, somebody was out in the Gulf of Alaska, some kind of ship, and somebody in the crew had fallen and hit in their head, and their eyes were going to the back of their head. And you could hear it transpiring between the crew of this ship and the Coast Guard. The conversation as they were trying to get this person back to town so they could then do a medevac helicopter to get him to anchorage or something like that and the, turns out the person ended up surviving but we're out there in the middle of nowhere and we're listening to this because these radios these marine radios they're on a extremely powerful frequency and that's just something that all boats and anybody out there really has to have uh, you know let's say you hear about somebody their boat is sinking and they're a bay over from you 10 miles from you you would be able to go and respond because you might be able to get there quicker being out in a location like that than say the coast guard that has to travel 20, 30 miles, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy to hear that kind of stuff, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's good to, especially in a location like that, not to venture too far out from the home base, uh, just because you literally can step outside and you're already on a mountain. So it's not like we had to get to a parking lot and hike up just to get away from the crowds. No, this was, you're starting at where uh, you basically you already want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you already got there. So yeah. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. I always wonder when I watch these because you see the travel scenes, but you guys are trying to get to the investig- investigatory part, you know. Right. So I'm like, man, I wonder how long that boat ride actually was. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the landing was a lot longer than the ride. So uh, we, we sped through that part because it's difficult to try to land a, a little skiff and not hit some rocks and then throw the anchor in and, and it's the whole process. So it probably looks a lot easier on camera than it actually was. <laughs> Maybe we'll do an extended edition one day of all these episodes right, right. With, with all that stuff, you know, <laughs> I joke, but I would, I would watch it. Um, yep. <laughs> Turtle Island has a question for us. Um, uh, Hadi, I'm sorry. I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. I apologize. Um, any encounter with cougars? Hmm. Maybe not so, necessarily during this film, but any any of your films. I think. Yeah, I mean, there are no cougars in this part of Alaska officially. I mean, they're kind of like a cryptid in Alaska. They do see them sometimes in southeast Alaska. But yeah, we've had some encounters in our Olympic Bigfoot. We were basically on the heels of a, a mountain lion slash cougar in the Olympic Peninsula. And we were out there with the Olympic Project. So we got some cool videos of tracks. And then obviously down in Florida with the Florida Panthers, those are... I was going to bring mountain lines. Yeah. So we've had plenty of, and not, not like visual sightings, but tracks. And I, I, I'm really into that topic with my lines of the East film and other stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's always been cool. I love running into mountain lions and moose. Those are probably two of my favorite animals in North America. Yeah. Alex has done some great work on the big cat stuff, folks. So it's glad to see that question asked. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Always, again, always good questions here. Um, Cheryl Peacock asks one, I think it's pretty interesting. Has anyone asked, uh, Amish if they have seen Sasquatch in Ohio, wondering if their beliefs would preclude them from talking about the big guy. Can't comment on that as far as, you know, or I can't, I don't know if you may know, but that is an interesting question. I don't know if anyone's gone out there to ask. I'm sure questions. it's happened. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, what you find a lot in this topic is funny with Bigfoot. It's you, you get this idea you're like, oh my God, this is great. Nobody's thought of this. And then you quickly realize that somebody's probably done it decades ago. And it's in a book. or Because people have been doing this Bigfoot stuff. So I'm sure in a place like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Stan Gordon or probably like uh, Robert W. Morgan or Don Keating or one of these old school kind of researchers from 
pre-internet era probably tried to talk to the Amish at some point. It's a great point. I mean, I think it's an awesome question, Cheryl. And it makes sense, certainly. Um, but I, I, I haven't really heard a whole lot about that. But I'd definitely be interested to learn more. Yeah, great question. Love it. Uh, Christina asks, Christina has is always here with the good questions. Um, I'm wondering if there are any indications from the eyewitnesses that family units of Sasquatch stay together, or is that rare, especially in Alaska with the, and it looks like it cut off the rest of your uh, uh -oh. question, Christina, but I think we got the gist. Yeah, that's a great question. Again, this is a lot of theorizing. I don't know. Um, the thing is with a lot of the eyewitness sightings that we have, they seem to be just in one individual. Usually people kind of allude possibly to being a male. So, uh, and then there are, of course, stories of sightings of multiple. I've heard of multiple sightings. One um, in Massachusetts, one was recently featured. The one in Massachusetts guy saw two of them, a smaller one and a bigger one. So maybe that indicates there's multiple together. There's the, um, the one that was featured in the Alaska Bigfoot Highway from Red Grossinger, the Yukon researcher talked about that, these guys coming across a juvenile or a baby and a mother, she grabbed it and left. So what's interesting, a lot of animals, including humans, do this, and certainly other primates, so gorillas and chimps, but humans too, we start off in family groups. We're very social animals, right? We live in a family, usually parents, siblings, whatever. Uh, and then usually it's the males that end up leaving. I mean, in, in our case, both, you know, uh, people end up leaving or, you know, kids end up leaving their family to create their own. That kind of happens. That goes on in nature, obviously, tones. Tons of species do that. So a lot of questions I think have been asked when people are seeing Sasquatches, are they just seeing like a lone male? Are they seeing a juvenile who's maybe a little more risky, doesn't care about being seen? The sightings, including juveniles or smaller ones and multiple ones, I think are a lot rarer than just a single kind of Sasquatch sightings. If you look at, I bet statistically, somebody like Squatcher Metrics or, or somebody, uh, Scott, over the Bigfoot Mapping Project, maybe you could, we could do some stats on this. The percentage of sightings that are just a one individual compared to a family group or multiple individuals, I'd venture to say they're probably very lopsided in favor of the, um, the single kind of individual being seen, whereas again, those sightings are rare. So it, that's the question, do, do we know what's going on? I've heard people claim with complete authority that, oh no, they stay in family groups their whole lives and that's what they do. I just, I don't know where they would get that information. First of all, I think there's a lot, of, a lot more guessing um, than, than there is really answering in this topic. But yeah, I'd be curious to know too. I mean, it's just one of those things that gets you thinking, what, what is going on here? Why are we seeing just one at a time or somebody get really rare to see multiple or even a, a family group? Obviously there's stuff like the Albert Osman story, whether or not that's real, um, that in indicates some kind of primate-like family group. I yeah, I and I love those speculative questions, you know, because there is so much that we don't know, but how are we ever going to figure it out? If we don't explore it. So that's what's, I mean, that's what I love about this series is you guys get out there and you get in the trenches, <clears throat> literally, proverbially. <laughs> <laughs> it's great stuff. I love it. Uh, Michael Tovar asks, Alex, what about that rock that collapsed onto the wooden area and anchor? What was that? Maybe a spoiler uh... here again. Folks. Yeah, I don't know about the rock that collapsed. In the, I don't know if I noticed that or if I missed that, but I know what it looked like from that cabin was that there was a wooden kind of platform area that was how you climbed up to get into the front because it was on stilts. This was basically a three-story cabin, believe it or not, because you had kind of an inside area and then I think there was a loft on the second part, but it was, it was vertically very tall. So I think that the front deck where you would, because there was a ladder underneath, it looks like you put the ladder up under the deck to climb up, and that's obviously done so bears can't get into your cabin. Um, as you can see, there's bear damage all around the cabin. I, that front part collapsed for whatever reason. Um, so again, it just says that somebody maybe hasn't been there in a long time. And then the wooden and the anchors, there was a bunch of stuff that was stashed down towards the bay underneath these rocks. It was kind of odd. We thought at first maybe it was, there was a big like, snow melt, wash. It, wash some stuff in there. But these things were really jammed in there and it almost looked like they were hidden. So I, I guess whoever was using this cabin was stashing some of their seafaring equipment there. So that was just weird. And we were just kind of showing you exactly what we found. We were, we were just as surprised as anybody watching this to come across this kind of secret stash after having get, gotten down from the cabin. That's, yeah, I, the, just the, the random stuff you guys find out there, like the unexpected, <laughs> 
it's almost you know it's almost like you're in a video game and you turn a corner and there's this whole thing looking for loot yeah <laughs> Lord of the Rings crazy. again. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, we do have a question I want to address real quick. It's a little off topic, uh, but Hike with Mike asks: Have you ever thought of investigating the Jersey Devil that supposedly lives in the New Jersey Pine Barrens? Um, Small Town Monsters does have a Jersey Devil film called Bloodlines: The Jersey Devil. Um, so I would love to go investigate the Pine Barrens personally. But we do have a, Let's a do film it. for we you to check it. out. Yeah. I'm serious. I've been I've been wanting to go to the Pine Barrens just to do, like even Cliff Barrickman of Finding Bigfoot. He's told in the past before the New Jersey was probably asked what state shocked you the most for potential Bigfoot habitat. He said New Jersey. Yeah, you know, most people in New Jersey they think the Sopranos or you know New York City, good some you know good pizza in that area, all that kind of stuff. They don't think wilderness, but Pine Barrens is a pretty wild area. So I would love to go investigate there. So we should totally do a. You should come along for that one investigation to the Pine Barrens, Aaron. I'm in. I'm in, man. <laughs> We're gonna end up like again to quote the Sopranos. That kind of uh, there's an episode where they go in this Pine Barrens. It's probably one of the funniest episodes of the whole show. Definitely go watch it, people. But we're gonna end up like those guys and lost in the woods and you know haunted by some kind of strange creature. <laughs> you know, maybe if if I have to go out, I've said this before. If I've had, if I have to go out, I'm okay with it being Bigfoot or the Jersey Devil in this case. You know. Yep. Just saying. <laughs> At least it'll make a good story. <laughs> Always. Uh, Turtle Island has another question. Um, any travels to the... I'm, I'm unsure of how to pronounce this, uh, but it's, it's Kwa- the... Waka Wak. Waka Wak. Wak territory. Uh, Northern Vancouver Island area. No, it's a good question. So that's I, I know that's a, that's a First Nation group in that area of Northern Vancouver. Island. I, I personally haven't been there. We did go to British Columbia back in May, and we did some stuff in Harrison Hot Springs, which is kind of just north of the American border there, and that's uh, where the term Sasquatch originated, Agassiz Valley and that whole Harrison Valley area uh, near Sasquatch Provincial Park, which is now called that. And we also, and I also did, I did go with, to, with another First Nations group further north than even Vancouver Island, which is about halfway down the... Um, British Columbia coastline, a place called Bella Coola. There's the uh, New Hulk Nation, and I spent some time with them. And they have some pretty interesting stories. It's kind of similar to some of those coastal Salish tribes and maybe that other tribe as well. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Super cool to see that. And that'll be in future Bigfoot Beyond the Trail stuff down the line. Awesome. It's a good question, though. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. The, folks will think of stuff, you know, like like this question, like, have you checked out this area? Are you going to check out this area? And I'll be like, that's a really good point. Can we yeah, go there? Right? Can we go there? <laughs> I love it. No, it's, again, those real smart commenters and people in the chat. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Hey, a suggestion that you make could one day become a small town monsters film. You never know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You life, know. life is crazy. You never know. Uh, going back to weather conditions and documentation, Gregory Baldridge asks, uh, what is the best weather conditions for finding evidence? I I feel like just nicer weather is just nicer in general. I don't think anyone likes really, really bad weather. It's not fun. Uh, it's, it's just challenging, right? You're dealing with not only are you miserable, wet all the time. You're trying to find times when you can get dry and you're trying to focus on, whereas these creatures, they don't care. I mean, they live in this all the time so for them it's not a big deal but for us it's mm. um it's a little bit difficult i would just say for me personally probably just nicer weather i my ideal just weather in general for being out in the woods camping is like uh in the 60s maybe like fall weather i'm up here in new england in the fall weather you get these pretty warm days not too hot i don't i don't like humidity very much um so cool nights that kind of thing crisp cool nights i just prefer that but obviously i'll do any condition and we've done everything from the most humid to uh crazy cold in alaska the first ever bigfoot be on the trail it was like seven degrees uh with wind chill when we camped out and i mean i i enjoy challenging myself with that kind of stuff but in terms of finding evidence you could find evidence potentially in any type of weather uh sightings and and footprints and those kinds of things have been found in all types of conditions from winter to summer i don't think that necessarily uh, dictates kind of what is going to happen but uh yeah it may just depend on when you're there this is just me spitballing but yeah you know for sure it's to when you arrive another great question another great question Ooh, forgot how to talk for a second uh gil faber asks <laughs> were you able to personally see the tree that was jammed upside down into the ground 
No. Uh, I don't know if they're referring to, there's like in Alaska, there's stories of jam trees in the ground. That's more of Southeast Alaska. I do know some backstory in that though. That was allegedly some of those famous ones that people claim are associated with Bigfoot were actually done by logging crews that kind of did that for fun. And the actually the First Nations groups in Alaska would use this technique, and this was more on the coast, where they would, in low tide, they would take a big tree with all kinds of roots like almost, that almost looked like a nest in it, and they would flip it upside down. And there's, there was a whole exhibit of this uh, in the Anchorage airport where they would hoist this tree with a bunch of guys with ropes, get the tree, stab it in the ground, dig a hole, and bury it in the, mud, in this, in the sand. And then when the high tide comes in, what they would do is they would climb up into these trees and hunt from there. They would hunt beluga whales that way because if they drag it out way out, so it'd have to be a really big tree. And I have pictures of this kind of exhibit. So a lot of people think that oh, only Sasquatch could do that kind of tree thing. But unfortunately, a lot of the really famous cases seem to be coming from more explainable and unfortunately human origins. Um, we did find one weird, or I didn't see it personally, this kind of weird jam tree thing at Area A. But it was just kind of this smaller tree. So that's maybe something more believable than the these giant 2,000, 3,000 pound trees. Hmm. It's an interesting question because you do see that come up, you know, in a lot of Sasquatch research is the placement yeah. of trees and stuff like that. So I think it's important to ask those questions. I mean, Absolutely. if you give me one second, I just want to see if I can pull this up. Yeah. I know, I know Rob Roy Menzies of the Bigfoot Art Gallery, who's awesome, had sent me these pictures because we had discussed this. So I, I don't know if I can, I can hold it up and you might be able to see it. This I is, can see it, yeah. So this is kind of the diorama there from this airport exhibit in Anchorage where it would show what these guys would do and how they would hoist the trees up, carry them in. And so you can see them with the, with the ropes, low tide, and then they'd wait, they'd climb up in there, wait for high tide, and that's how they would hunt, basically. So Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it's, again, I think just... We got to remember with this topic, uh, there's a lot of stories that sound too good to be true. And a lot of times, most of the times they are. So yeah, uh, it's just important to realize that can be a well, factor. Well, then we learn about this stuff, you know, so we win either way. <laughs> we win either way. Definitely. Uh, Matt's tube of you. Always good to see you. Uh, great episode. I noticed, Alex, you were pretty diligent regarding the journal. Any chance it could be the basis of a book regarding the expedition? Ooh. No, I've never thought of that. Uh, that's, that's a good question, Matt. You know, the journal was more of just me kind of um, forcing myself to write daily. I actually really enjoy writing, but just it was like a, they're not very detailed entries, I got to say. So sorry to disappoint. I don't think it'd be a very interesting book. It'd be very short because it's basically that book was actually technically like a Bigfoot research journal. And, and the intention of it was, let's say you had somebody who had a sighting or you had some kind of incident you would just write down inf very basic info in there. So it didn't have a lot of text space, but it was just me writing daily updates about what had happened. And even if there was nothing happening, I just said, well, we went fishing today. We also did this, we camped up here. Just so when I'm later on editing the terabytes of footage that comes out of this stuff, I can also have a reference point of saying, okay, this is exactly when this happened. It's a good way for me to remember things. So I don't know if it would necessarily be a good book, but uh, it'd be very short, like I said. I think maybe some other book about just overall kind of stuff might be more interesting. I'd read it though. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another question from our audience, Violet S asks, there have been sightings in uh, Uhari National Forest, North Carolina. Any plans to investigate there? I love all of Alex's work. Awesome, thank you. Um, yeah, the, I think it's pronounced the Uhari. I'm not, I'm not certain. I know there's been stuff oh, out of there yeah. for years. Sorry. No, no, you're fine. I, I, I just know it because I've heard of other people talking about this area. There have been some alleged stuff out of there. I'd love to. I mean, I haven't checked out a lot of North Carolina. The only parts of North Carolina I've really been to have been kind of the Smoky Mountain and the Appalachian section. So out towards the more western part of the state. I know the Uwaris are more, I want to say, east from there. But it's a pretty cool area. And there's definitely seems like there's a lot of interesting stuff. So, I mean, I'm, I'm down to check out anything, really. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. have much of, much of a reservation in checking out any area. But... Uh, <laughs> It's, there's just, I have to pick and choose my battles, right? There's so many places you want to go and, and you only have so much time. So I try to yeah. maximize. Even given infinite resources, there's only so much time in the day. Like, I know, it's a bummer. <laughs> it's, it's, I wish we didn't have to sleep because we get a, a few extra hours there. <laughs> yeah, 
I'm with, I'm with you there. I'm definitely and blood is a trap, I guess. <laughs> it is, man. You know, I have to eat. I have to stop every now and yeah. again. You know, it just doesn't. I just don't. I just don't like it. Um, we have a comment. Uh, Jessica from Metcalf. Um, this isn't so much a question, but I just I love it. Um, Bonjour from France. I enjoy your documentary style, even if I don't believe that Bigfoot is a thing now. Um, I do believe it once did. I, I love that, you know, because our small town monsters stuff, Alex's work, you know, it's not just, oh, you got to believe in Bigfoot to, yeah. to to enjoy this or to watch this or to be a part of the community. You don't. You know, so I love that comment. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah, absolutely. And awesome. Thanks for watching from France. Uh, we love all our viewers all over the world. Um, and I appreciate the, the comment. And yeah, I, I, I warrant the skepticism. Absolutely. I think it's good that there are people that are skeptical and are willing to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to wholeheartedly believe it. And that's when I try to create the films, I try to kind of cater to everybody. You don't have, like, as you say, you don't have to be an extreme believer. It's not like, oh, yeah, you can't watch my stuff if you don't believe in Bigfoot. Where's your Bigfoot <laughs> believer, you know, yeah, ID or whatever? <laughs> no, and I love it. I've, I've talked to a lot. No? <laughs> exactly. I've talked to a lot of people who watch some of our stuff and just who get into the Bigfoot topic that are, are skeptical, but just, uh, you know, I, I appreciate it. I think it's good. I love talking to people that are more skeptical. I do that. I talk to a lot of people that are not even into this Bigfoot stuff because I'll bounce kind of ideas off of them just to see, is this crazy? Because you ask another Bigfoot person, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's great. Great idea. You ask maybe someone that has no idea about Bigfoot stuff, they can actually give you some really great insight. They're like, okay, maybe you should try this. Maybe, like, no, that sounds ridiculous. That totally, you're, you know, you're not going to convince anybody. It's just kind of nice. So I, I appreciate that comment and I... Uh, you know, I, I, I respect your opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When you mentioned skepticism, that was that was one thing I wanted to ask. You know, you guys always do a great job of being very empirical and, and skeptical as you go about this stuff. Is it difficult to retain that skeptical perspective when you're in these wild places and seeing these, you know, vast landscapes? And, you know, I'm, I'm just curious if that if that affects that thought process at all. It does. I mean, obviously, I have my own opinions. I, I lean more towards the existence of something like Sasquatch than than, than not existing, uh, and that's largely just due to my personal experience, having talked to so many people, hundreds of witnesses at this point. People, and and a handful of those that are really, really exceptionally credible. That you know, a lot of them are very credible. You know, I put them in a certain category, but if it's a fleeting glimpse or whatever. But the people who have had this a very close encounter that to me, I just have no rational explanation for other than they saw what, you know, some kind of Sasquatch-like creature. Uh, and then some of the other weird stuff we've had happen, uh, just stuff like that. So that's kind of colored my experiences, but seeing some of these areas, and I think when we talked about the Alaska Bigfoot Highway, that probably exemplified it more than most other um, videos was just the, the amount of nothingness that's out there, that how easily humans can disappear. I mean, even when we were in British Columbia, I talked to a researcher who told me a story of a, of a World War II era, you know, like a big uh, plane that was lost on Vancouver Island that wasn't found for upwards of 50 years. That's a stationary object that nobody could find that's gigantic. Uh, so it just tells you how much space is out there that really anything could be out there. I think Sasquatch still to this day, people say it's hard to believe, but just drive across the continent and you just... It's frightening how much space is still out there. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of space still, and I think it's possible for somebody to be out there. Yeah, you and I, I think, have talked about this before. We may have talked about this on the last stream we were on together, but you know, we forget how big the world is and how how little a space we occupy. Sometimes I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another question from Turtle Island. Turtle Island coming in with the the hot ones tonight. Um, any future filming plans with indigenous communities? We have stories, songs, dances, and art in honoring Sasquatches. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, you know, obviously some of the upcoming STM British Columbia stuff will have a, a big indigenous and First Nations kind of uh, look at the topic. I, I was there when Seth and them got to interview a man from, I don't remember what First Nation group it was, but it was closer to Harrison Hot Springs. He talk, talked a lot about, and I listened to the whole interview, it was amazing. He talked a lot about you know, his kind of cultural interpretation of Sasquatch and, and the way his people look at it. Obviously, I got to spend time with that group, the New Hulk Nation up in Bella Coola, which was amazing. So I hope to kind of present uh, that video in, in, you know, in a way I think is, is 
the way they kind of talk about this topic and these strange sort of phenomena. But yeah, I'd love to. I know there's even some of the the upcoming werewolf slash skinwalker type stuff that STM is doing. They spent some time on the Navajo Nation that I wasn't on that trip, but you know, Seth and a bunch of the other crew. So there's going to be a lot more of that, I think. And I'd love to to spend time with other groups in other parts of you know, either Canada or the U.S. going forward for sure. Yeah, we we would love to hear any stories that you would care to share with us. I think, <laughs> I think I can, yeah. I, I think I'm safe in speaking for <laughs> the STM crew and saying we would love to talk with you. So thank you, Turtle Island. You have, you have had a lot of great questions tonight. Yeah, very sure. much appreciate it. Um, folks, we've been talking dark coast hunt for the Alaskan Bigfoot into the fog. Um, and I loved this one. This is probably one of my favorites that you guys have put out recently, but um, if you were going to tease it for somebody, you know, what's one thing you would tell them? You should check out this film because I'm putting you on the spot here. Uh, so. I don't know, man. <laughs> Honestly, like editing this, I did not really like it, to be honest. I did not. I don't know. It's just I was in a weird mood editing it. I just kind of was like, I don't know if people are going to like this at all. It's weird. It's really hard as a creator to understand how people are going to interpret your work. And this was, I think, for me was... Like, for example, the Alaska Bigfoot High was very interview heavy. It was a very personal journey, you know, it was covering a lot of ground. Whereas this was, I tried to be more boots on the ground and it's a little more investigative. So if you're really into kind of more boots, heavy boots on the ground, obviously the usage of technology with the thermal drone, um, abandoned locations, that kind of stuff. Just, just some beautiful Alaska scenery. That's, I think, that aesthetic. That's probably some of the, my favorite footage that we've ever filmed with STM has been some of that stuff that Damon was getting with those uh, drone shots of like that fog and everything. It was just incredible. I mean, it's just such an amazing location. Even though we filmed there last year, especially with the Alaska Coastal Series, the aesthetic is so different when that fog rolls in and you just can't even see half the mountains. It just, it adds so much more of a creepiness. And like I said earlier at the beginning of the show, it really connects well with that Dark Coast title we've, um, yeah, we've kind of come up with for it. So, yeah. Well, the, the imagery is just killer. I mean, this is just me on a, on a side tangent for a sec, but you hear Dark Coast, and you're like, whoa, this is going to be, I'm going to go back <laughs> to Lord of the Rings again. This is going to be some Lord of the Rings stuff. Like, where are they going? Like, I love it, man. Yeah, I think Seth, Seth had mentioned that, like, Into the Fog was probably his favorite title for a series uh, or, like, an episode of anything STM's done. I'm like, yeah, I mean, to me, it was just literally that's what we were doing was just, I'm like, it sounds ominous, but it's also very true. I mean, as we were going into that fog, uh, and that's exactly what we did. So I, I thought it worked. It was practical, yet it adds like this kind of cool comments. Pirates of Dark Coast Waters. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah, that's awesome. Awesome to see you, man. Love it. Always good to see you, Jeremiah. A lot of great questions and comments. Yeah, you guys, these, these shows are what they are because you come out and you talk with us and you ask these questions. Like, you know, otherwise Alex and I would just stare at each other for an hour and <laughs> no, nobody wants that. <laughs> and I love, I love all the questions. And I mean, I'm totally down. Take another couple questions if you want. If uh, I know we yeah. started a little late, so we could, we could do another few questions yeah. for, to an hour. We I'm got totally a couple down. that came in here at the end I'd love to get to. Uh, Michael sure. Tovar. Always good to see you, Michael. Um, remind me, has STM done investigation at the Ape Canyon location where the Sasquatch were bombarding the miners' cabin all night long? Um, so not like hmm. exactly at the location. I know Seth covered it somewhat in one of the first on the trail of Bigfoot films when they went out with Mark Marcel and they kind of went to that general area, but they didn't go to the actual canyon. So we haven't done it yet. That is, a, 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 when, whenever there's a, we haven't done it yet, there's a lot of dots after that. So <laughs> mm -hmm. those dots yeah. lead somewhere. So right. it's very, very possible, <laughs> but it's a great, I mean, I, I, I've been wanting to return to that part of uh, the PNW for a while. It's just yeah. kind of north of Oregon, southern Washington, Mount St. Helens area. It looks unreal. So uh, definitely expect something from that area in the future. Awesome. More teasers. <laughs> uh, Ristol asks, researching on the Kenai, have you had a chance to check out Portlock slash Port Chatham? So people ask this question a lot. I think that's just because this topic has, of course, been popularized by uh, other documentaries and TV shows. And so Larry Beans Baxter, who's throughout the Darko series and is appearing, I think, in every single Alaska-related Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, he wrote like the book on the Port Chatham incident. I mean, his book... 
Uh, I, and I'm, I'm sorry, Beans, if you're watching this, I do not remember the title, but it's like The History of Port Chatham. Fantastic book. Pick it up on Amazon or go to alasquas.com and pick it up. Uh, if you want to learn more and get a very kind of, I think, nuanced look at the whole story, because there's two extremes to the story. One is, you know, Bigfoots killed people and they abandoned the town out of fear. And the other side is, no, there were no Bigfoots. It was just economic. There's a very nuanced perspective. But I haven't personally been there. I did go to Homer, Alaska, which is the closest place basically to Port Chatham. And one of the Bigfoot Beyond the Trail episodes will involve some some recapping of the Port Chatham stuff by people who have investigated. So obviously like Beans, as well as a guy named uh, Lucas Rowley Chuk. He's got Chuk's Outdoor Adventures. He actually grew up in the Homer area. He used to hunt very close to Port Chatham growing up and heard a lot of weird stories, like stuff like there's no bears that go on that side of the bay for whatever reason, but then you can bear hunt across from Port Chatham, but for some reason they don't go into that area, which mm. is just weird. But I feel like it's been done quite a bit, the Port Chatham story. So that's why Area A was much more of a focus. It's the same type of habitat on the same peninsula. I mean, there's virtually hundreds of miles of coastline that look just like either Port Chatham or Area A. As Beans always says, I could show you a picture of Port Chatham or Area A and you wouldn't know the difference. They're the same exact type of habitat. Just, wow. uh, you know, very far apart, but the same coastal Kenai Peninsula. So... Uh, and we had obviously access to this area, which is the biggest, it's the biggest key, you know. That's incredible, man. And uh, Jeremiah did let us know the title of that book is Abandoned. Abandoned. There you go. So, Thank you, Jeremiah. Larry Beans uh, again, check it be, out. and it's a, it's a fantastic, it's the best book on the Port Chatham topic out there. That's a fascinating, I've always found that very interesting, but that's just, that's awesome. Um, Ken Jekyll asks, this is a fun one. We talked about this oh, a little yeah. bit during our last live stream. Alex, uh, what does your brother think of going along with the investigation? I think he enjoys it. I mean, he's not as into the Bigfoot topic, but he's definitely been into it since I've been into it for a while. I'm, I'm speaking for him here. But, um, yeah, he, I think he enjoys it. Just the being able to be out in nature aspect of it, I think, is obviously the most rewarding. But uh, he's curious. He's very interested in the topic. I know he's watched some other Bigfoot stuff, too, and... He kind of looks into it, but he's not as, you know, obsessed with it as, as I'd say I am. But it's just so cool being able to share those experiences with him. And, you know, somebody solid that I trust in the woods, too, of course. Uh, never bad to have somebody like that around. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this series. I think we talked about that last time is that, you know, you guys got to do this stuff as like a family team. I think it's cool. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, love it. Uh, maybe our last question of the night. This might be a sure. nice teaser for what some of what we'll see in upcoming episodes. I don't know. Uh, but Mark in AZ asks, Alex, how about publishing your gear list or a short video talking about the gear? I always love Alex's gear gear shots. That's one of my, my Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have it published anywhere. I do sometimes on my social media. If you follow me, I'll post like stuff that I might be using, not like not product placement, but if I really like something, I tend to brag about it. So for example, like those Hill People Gear chest rigs, I think are just fantastic. It's something that I've been looking for for years that I finally use now. Um, just, you know, obviously tons of camera gear and stuff like that, but um, that'd be cool. I've thought about, you know, my my channel, I have a YouTube channel called Sasquatch Out of the Shadows that I used to do live streams on and other short videos for years. I'm not doing like some gear reviews and stuff like that, but I get so, I do so much editing with the, these series with like Dark Coast and Bigfoot Beyond the Trail. When that's all said and done, I don't really want to edit anymore. So it's like, <laughs> for me wanting to then shoot a full review video and make it good, I can't just, you know, kind of half-ass it. I have to actually try to make it good. So I don't end up doing it. I kind of, I get frustrated, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's tough. But yeah, I, like I said, following on social media, I tend to talk about, I post gear shots. So maybe that's the closest thing to it. I really like, I'll do it like once or twice a year, I'll post a full gear loadout before an expedition. I just love those types of shots, the aesthetic. You lay everything down out on the floor and you take an above shot. And uh, I just, I'm a sucker for gear. So that's, that's fun. But, uh, <laughs> They're very inspiring. Alex's gear shots will make you want to get out in the woods. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, we're on a, we're coming up on the hour. Um, apologies that we started a couple minutes late tonight. We had some technical issues on my end. I am very sorry for that. Um, but we appreciate y'all being here. We appreciate your questions. Thank you for everything you do to support Small Town Monsters, whether you're a squad member, whether you share with friends and family. We appreciate it. And, you know, we wouldn't be here without you. Tune in next week where we'll be discussing something. 
Not sure what yet necessarily. Maybe a surprise. And I'm sure we'll see Mr. Petakov again very soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again, man, for uh, having me on. And always a pleasure to chat with everybody. Tons of great comments, questions as always in the chat. Thank you guys for checking out our stuff. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. 100%. Alex, you have a great night. I'll talk with you soon, my friend. You too, buddy. You've been listening to the Small Town Monsters Broadcasting Network. If you enjoyed this show, consider giving it a like, review, rating, or sharing it with a friend. And be sure to visit smalltownmonsters.com for more info about this and other STM projects.